On April 12th, 1961, Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin made the first manned space flight. Now, during his 89-minute orbit of the planet, he was in awe of the incredible beauty of our world as seen from space. Um, but on his return to Earth, he made the comment, I looked and looked, but I didn't see God. Contrast that to Christmas Eve, 1968. And Apollo 8 enters orbit around the moon, and it marked the first time that a manned spacecraft had left the gravity well of the planet Earth. And it was this lunar orbit that first gave us this remarkable view of our world for the first time. And it was there that astronauts William Anders, James Lovell, and Frank Borman then took turns from reading from the Genesis account of creation. Now, the astronauts and the cosmonaut were both looking at the same evidence, and yet they saw two completely different things. Well, is God there or isn't he? And one Christian philosopher declares that God is there and he is not silent, while another admits that there are times that God seems invisible, hidden, and absent. One person prays and never receives an answer, yet another person prays and finds answers everywhere. Whether or not we find God often depends on what we're looking for and what we're willing to see. <clears throat> we see a strange dichotomy in Scripture. On the one hand, God reveals himself, he makes himself known, and yet on the other hand, he seems to hide himself and make himself difficult to find. The psalmist sings in Psalm 97, verse 2, clouds and thick darkness surround him. So it seems that, well, God is both easy to know and hard to find at the same time. We arrive at a handful of verses today that uh, we find in the Sermon on the Mount, and it gets straight to the heart of this mystery. And they're both a challenging call and an amazing promise. Here's Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God wants to be known, but... He only wants to be found by those who genuinely desire him. God reveals himself to those who are really looking and are really willing to accept what they find. But to those who are only looking for God as they want him to be and not as he is, I think God will remain elusive. But if you really desire in your heart to know God, then he is a question that will be answered, a quest that will be fulfilled, and a door 
that will be opened. And therein lays both, I think, the challenge and the promise. The challenge here is this, that seeking God requires effort on our part. Seeking God requires effort. He wants to be found, but, but God also wants us to search. We must want to find him. God does not force himself upon us. God reveals himself, but only to those who are really looking. And so Jesus describes those who are really looking as those who ask, seek, and knock. Now, these aren't three unconnected terms, but they're they're interrelated, each one building on the one before it, and together they describe a deepening search, each one rising in intensity and effort. Richard Glover applies these descriptions to, to being like a child looking for his mother. And if his mother is, is in the same room and is visible, right, the child just simply asks, Mom, but if mom is see, out of sight, say in a different room in the house, then the child will seek her with greater earnest, earnestness. Mommy, are you in here? Mommy, are you downstairs? Mommy, are you in the backyard? And the more the child seeks, the more he desires his mother. His longing increases as he seeks her. And if the child then discovers that he can't find his mom or that she's inaccessible, perhaps locked in the bathroom, what does the child do? Well, he knocks. He beats upon the door. Mommy, I need you. His search becomes quite earnest at that point. And in the same way, our desire for God increases as we search for him. <laughs> Excuse me. God doesn't lay it all out there, revealing everything without effort. Thomas Merton suggests that if you find God with great ease, perhaps it is not God that you have found. And the way these things are written in the Greek indicates that the, the asking, the seeking, and the knocking are to be ongoing, continuous activities in our lives. Right? Finding God isn't something that happens only once, right? You don't just ask, seek, and knock only once. Like, well, I, I found God. I, I found Jesus. But rather, asking, seeking, and knocking are an ongoing part of a, of a growing relationship with God. And the more that we get to know him, the more we want to know. All right, so you keep asking you you keep seeking you you keep knocking and it is only through this kind of ongoing effort and searching that we find god you won't find god through eh, casual interest you won't have a relationship and develop a relationship with him through mild curiosity it's like the fisherman who long ago had abandoned his relationship with god and one day while he was fishing, a, a sudden, unexpected great storm blows up, and he begins to fear for his life. And he finally cries out in prayer, 
Oh, Lord, I haven't asked anything of you in 15 years. And if you help me now and bring me safely to shore, I won't bother you again for another 15. Right? A lot of people give up on finding God after a few half-hearted attempts. Right? And they conclude that, that either God isn't there or he can't be known. This brings up a curious question. <clears throat> Why? Why doesn't God make himself easier to be found? Why not just, you know, a loud trumpet voice from the heavens that everybody can hear all at once? Why doesn't he make himself more obvious, easier to see? And what we find in Scripture is that God both conceals and reveals himself at the same time. Philip Yancey has wisely observed that Jesus often made it harder, not easier, for people to believe. One of the things that Jesus did was he, he told the truth in parables. Now, parables revealed the truth to those who were earnestly searching for it, to those who really wanted to know the truth and who would respond to it. And it, and it gave them the truth in an easy-to-understand story form. At the same time, parables were kind of like riddles, and they hid the truth from casual observers. Right? It, it disguised the truth from those who weren't really willing to think deeply about it. And for those who were only willing to see what they wanted to see, the, the parables hid the truth. For those looking only for reasons not to believe, the parables were confusing. But for those who wanted to see... Well, Jesus' teaching allowed them to see even more. But for those who didn't want to see, Jesus' teaching kept them from seeing anything at all. In fact, it's kind of interesting in Jesus' ministry, early on in his ministry, he attracted tremendous crowds. Right? They, they were amazed that he taught differently from anyone they'd ever heard before. Right? And word of mouth spread. Right? And then they heard about the tremendous miracles he did, and, and the word of mouth grew even more. People showed up because they wanted to see it and hear it for themselves. But it's interesting what Jesus does with these crowds. <clears throat> he doesn't keep trying to draw more crowds. Jesus seems to go out of his way to baffle them and confuse them and drive the crowds away. Early in John, Jesus does one of his greatest miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. And the, the, the crowds have surged to their, their biggest size. Right? He is at the peak of his popularity. And it's at this point, with the largest number of people, that Jesus begins to issue some of his most challenging and difficult teachings. Even some of his own disciples are are kind of confused by what he says. And, and a lot of those that have been following Jesus from place to place for a long time become disillusioned. And the crowds turn away from Jesus. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, it says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Not just the casual observers, not just those that were showing up to, to catch a, a glimpse of this curiosity, but even those more serious disciples quit following him. Now, God doesn't 
conceal himself because he doesn't want to be found, but he truly wants us to want him, to ask, to seek, and to knock. When you search for God, what are you searching for? Who are you searching for? Who is it that you really want to find? And are you willing to find God as he truly is? Are you just hoping to find him, you know, the way you want him? When you go to God in prayer, when you ask and when you seek, is it really the creator of the universe, the almighty that you want to respond? Are you just looking for a heavenly Santa Claus to fulfill your wish list? Now, this, this is our challenging call to search for the God who is really there, not just the one we want to see. Seeking God requires effort on your part. And if you really want to find God, if you really want to know him, you're going to have to work for it. But it's worth the effort. And that brings us to the second half of what Jesus teaches here. That if we're willing to search for the God who is there, Jesus gives an amazing promise. And the amazing promise is this, that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, God may conceal himself from those who don't really care, but to the earnest seeker, God makes himself known. He reveals himself. He wants to be found. He wants to be known, and he wants you to find him and he wants you to know him. To those who ask, it will be given. Those who seek will find. Those who knock will find the door is open to them. So asking, seeking, and knocking isn't just about finding out about God or knowing about God. It isn't just about getting your prayers answered. It's about having a relationship with God. We don't need to ask God or to seek or to knock, <clears throat> because if we didn't, God otherwise wouldn't know. I, do you think that Jesus wants us to ask because God needs the information? Right, your heavenly Father would really like to help you. If only he knew what you needed. So make sure you tell him. No, that's not it at all. Our asking isn't about what God needs. It's about what we need. It's about our need to draw close to God. It's about our desire to know him. It's about relationship. Jesus refers to God, refers to God here as our Father in heaven. And this circles us back to the Lord's Prayer. And I told you there in that message just how revolutionary of an idea it was to address the Almighty Yahweh as our Father in heaven. And the word that Jesus uses here is, is Abba. All right, this was an intimate term of, of home and family, the first century equivalent of daddy. And to address God in this manner was unheard of in Jewish prayer tradition. All right, there was no rabbi or Pharisee or priest who would pray to God and call him daddy. All right, they wouldn't dare, dare think of addressing God in such casual but intimate terms. And yet Jesus did it all the time. Now we might think, well, that's okay because Jesus is God's son. Of course he can call him his heavenly daddy. But then Jesus teaches us 
that we can do the same thing, that God is our daddy in heaven. So asking, seeking, and knocking are about building and having that kind of personal relationship with God. And God invites us to search for him because he wants us to know him. He is looking for a passionate love and an intense desire to know him. And that's the search that God promises to reward. He wants you to know him. And he wants to know you. And the Bible promises that when we seek God, we will find life. That when we seek God, we will find strength. We will find joy and gladness. We will find discernment and wisdom, we will find hope. <clears throat> However, the greatest reward in seeking God is that we will find him. Proverbs 8, 17 promises, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. God assures us through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. God is the greatest treasure we will find. All of the other blessings that we find when we're seeking God, those are simply bonus. That's icing on the cake. All right, but God is the cake. Now, there is one question or difficulty that this passage brings up that, that I want to deal with before I'm done with this message. Some have mistakenly taken Jesus' words to be a a blanket promise to give us whatever we ask for in prayer. Ask God for anything you want, and he will give it to you. Just ask with enough faith, or just ask with the right formula. You know, it's taken on many different forms. And on a, a certain level here, Jesus' promise seems to be a, a simple and straightforward promise to answer prayer. But there is more than meets the eye. It's kind of like the farmer who had... He thought he had been taken by the car salesman. And so when the car salesman calls him up and asks him how much for a cow, the farmer says $500 for the cow. The car salesman thought, well, that's an amazing deal for a cow. And he came immediately to, to get the cow. But then he was shocked when he got the bill. Basic cow, $500. Two-tone exterior, $85. Extra stomach, $175. Product storage compartment, $60. Dispensing unit, four spigots, $100. Genuine leather upholstery, $225. Dual horns, $50. Automatic fly swatter, $65. Total, $1,160. Right? It's a good deal. It's a cow with a lot of options. Well, there are some people that think that this is how prayer works. Jesus' promise here seems quite simple and straightforward, and yet many times prayer never seems to work that way. Well, there's a lot more going on behind the scene here. First of all is we can't take these verses out of the passage by themselves. We can't separate them from everything else that surrounds them in the Sermon on the Mount. So like verses 7 and 8 can only be understood along with verses 9, 10, and 11. And the bottom line there in those later verses is that God desires to give us good gifts. That means that when we ask God for something or we're seeking something good from him, um, that he will give it. 
God doesn't give us whatever we want just because we ask for it, all right? And Jesus uses human parents as an illustration, right? We'll give our children good things when they ask for them, but we don't give them bad things, right? No matter how much they beg, they plead, they cry, we're not going to give them bad things just because they want them, all right? That's, that's a key point here. Now, maybe we would object. We'll say, yeah, but <clears throat> I've asked God for good things, but he doesn't always give them. Well, there's a number of reasons why God may not answer our prayers uh, the way that we want. For instance, already here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said that there are some things that can keep our prayers from being answered. For instance, as we saw in the Lord's Prayer, God says that we must be merciful and forgiving of others. All right, so if we want God to be merciful to us, we've got to be merciful to others. If we're not, God's not going to show us that same mercy. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, that if we're praying only to impress others, to be noticed by other people, then our prayers won't be answered. The other thing that's important to understand, though, here is this, that, that our definition of good and God's definition of good aren't always the same. Right, God's understanding of good is different and better than yours. I should say that, that God's definition of good is more complete. Right, we might think that we're asking for something good, but our understanding is, is so limited. Right, but God understands everything. Right? He sees everything. Right? And he understands how everything is interconnected. He also foresees the future. And so he knows with certainty how everything in the present, not only how it's all interconnected in the present, but how it will all work out in the future. And so he understands much more than you do what is truly good for you. And so there might be something that in the moment that you think is good, that this is a good thing that you're asking for, but God knows in all of its interconnections with everything and everyone else and how it will work out and play out in the future, maybe even past your lifetime, that he knows that that truly isn't what is best, not only for you, but for everyone else. All right, so the thing that, that seems good to us in the moment, God in his infinite wisdom knows that it really isn't, and he knows really what is best for us. Prayer was never intended to be a blank check for Christians to get whatever they want. 1 John 5.14 makes it clear that our prayers must be in accordance with God's will. This is the confidence that we have an approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so Jesus' promise here is that, that not only will God reward the heart that is earnestly seeking God, but we, we take that in the context of scripture, we also understand that, that we're asking in accordance with his will. Right? This isn't the secret to winning the heavenly lottery. Now, I don't think this diminishes Jesus' promise here at all. This is still an amazing promise. When we are searching for the right thing, when we are asking for the right thing, 
God will answer. God will respond. God will reward those who earnestly seek him. God will reward you if you earnestly seek him. Some years ago, a young man approached the foreman of a logging crew and he was begging for a job. And the foreman replied, well, that depends. He says, let me see you fell this tree. So the young man stepped forward and skillfully felled a a great tree. The foreman was impressed. And so he said, you can start on Monday. So Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday roll by. And Thursday afternoon, the, the foreman approaches the young man and he says, hey, you can pick up your paycheck on the way out today. Well, he was kind of flummoxed. It's like, wait, I thought you paid on Fridays. And the foreman explained, normally we do, but um, we're letting you go today because you've fallen behind. According to our daily charts, you went from first place on Monday to last place on Wednesday. He was befuddled. He's like, but I'm a hard worker. I, I show up before anyone else. I leave after everyone else. I've even worked through my coffee breaks. Well, sensing the boy's sincerity, the foreman thought for a minute, and then he asked, tell me, have you been sharpening your axe? And the young man replied, I've been too busy. I haven't had the time. Well, how about you? Have you been sharpening your axe? Or have you been too busy, working too hard to take the time? Well, prayer is the hone that gives you that sharp edge. Without it, the more work you do and the harder you try, the duller you'll get. Thank you. And God bless.